Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a pastor and elder here at Resident. I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, if you've been following along with the series, I'm sure you're starting to think, what are we possibly talking about today? Uh, <clears throat> it's like a bit of a curveball every week. Uh, I want to open by reading um, something uh, written by a woman named Julie Bell. It's adapted from it called A Lament for the Evangelical Church. It says, Oh, church, you are breaking my heart. What has happened? What has become of you? Church, you showed me Jesus. You loved me when I felt unlovable. You taught me to pray. You taught me to worship. You taught me to commune with Holy Spirit. You prayed for me, and because of you, I fell in love with Jesus, who gave his life in love for the whole entire world, and I physically went to the absolute ends of the earth just to follow him and to reach the people he loved with his love. But you whitewashed misogyny and told me I was a rebellious one. You didn't love people with the same brown skin as my Jesus, as if they were Jesus himself. You didn't look after poor people as if they really were my little brothers and sisters, and I was sad. But I understood that no church is perfect, and we're all learning, and and we shouldn't judge, and, and, and. Then you embraced a corrupt and predatory man and told me that he was Cyrus and that God could use him, anyone, except those evil progressive SJWs, of course. You believed and consumed QAnon and told me it was prophetic revelation, While I was a voice howling in the wilderness, and the people of truth turned out to be the ones most gullible, the ones with the most appetite for disinformation and lies. You told me I was deceived. I was the one with a reprobate mind, believing the strong delusion, while you reposted memes, memes, and more memes. I was alarmed, and I said, patriarchy's wrong, and it's not the heart of God, and spiritualized sexism propagates secret sexual abuse. And then it did. By the hundreds, the thousands, the hundred thousands. And then you said it was the victims who were doing the devil's work and being a distraction of the gospel. All while the unbuckled Bible belt consumed the most porn. And Q told you, evil Democrat pedophiles and Pizzagate and Wayfair cabinets and Hillary and Ivor Mecton, all of it was wrong. And then the Family Research Council guy from Christian TV gets 12 years for child porn. And the godly pastor publicly confessed his adultery, but admits to mention she was just 16. You said you were pro-life. You said, I have to support Pauline Hansen and Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly and Bernie Finn because they are pro-life. You said every other political party left of them is doing the devil's work. And that the ones doing racism, xenophobia, conspiracy theory, and coal mining corruption, and sex cover-ups, they are the only godly ones really doing the will of the Lord. And when I suggested there are multiple ways to reduce abortions, the pro-life stances may not help women, and the pro-life platform is a political device. So you told me I was a bad influence then. I shouldn't teach my children of God's or God's children. I shouldn't speak, and you must not partner with me. I warned about algorithms of deliberately addictive and, percep- um, and deceptive YouTube grifters who know how to monetize and hypnotize. But you learned from one such YouTube video that water birth and almond oil and placentas were witchcraft, that I was a witch because I knew herbs and helped women birth. Take my healing to the nations, the old song echoes in my deepest heart. All the beautiful worship songs that drew me into the presence of God, the worship of my whole life. But you said, let us worship instead of Black Lives Really Do Matter. You turn young love bomb lovers into political Christians, soldiers for your Jericho march to victory or supremacy. And I only wanted to let justice roll like a never-failing stream, and I said, oh, but so many guns, the body count, how many, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, is this what freedom really looks like? And you said, you can't take our freedoms. You want CRT out of school, but I want GRT out of the churches. You only want to regulate bombs, not guns. You make it harder to vote than to buy a rifle because values. You can't bubble wrap the world, you say. Oh, but I would if I could. I would bubble wrap the whole hurting, suffering world with the greenness of wrap if I could. That is the kind of freedom I want. Not just for thee, not just for me, but for we. Yes, we, for the others. The others who don't look, speak, worship, dress the same, have the same sexual orientation as me all the others. But you tell me I'm compromising with the world. I'm a hater. I am not a laid down lover like you. I'm a deceiver. I don't have fresh revelation like you. I am lukewarm and God will spit me out of his mouth. 
I'm not anointed like you. I am only a rebel, a Jezebel, a Marxist, a witch, a murderer, a reprobate, deceived, apostate, a wolf, and the worst of the worst, woke. This woman's words are um, probably not uh, uncommon in so many people's feelings over the last five, six years in the life of the church. And we've been walking through a series where we've talked through doubt, disillusionment, disorientation that people are experiencing. So many of the things that get connected ultimately to the whole idea of deconstruction. And I want to deal today particularly around the disillusionment that many feel about the church itself. And, and what I mean are usually the patterns of the American church that exists, predominantly um, the white evangelical church. Many who deconstruct, um, in my experience, are pretty heavily wounded by the church. Sometimes it's abusive and manipulated church leaders, and we're going to talk about that. Sometimes generally unhealthy church cultures. Sometimes it's programs with really good intentions, but terrible means to that end, like um, the purity culture movement. Um, sometimes it's just years and years of not owning the racial past, the racial divide, and the injustices and divisions that exist in the church. And hear me, it's easier to throw the baby out with the bathwater when you feel like you're drowning. <laughs> but church hurt is real. But I also want to say that deconstruction at the end of the day is also a bit of a false cure, at least how our modern definition works. That the gospel does have a remedy, and it's the word lament. Um, the Psalms are often these protests of mistreatment, uh, sometimes at the hands of God's people, sometimes at the hands of God's leadership himself. Like at the end of the day, like David was running from Saul, but Saul was appointed it. I mean, at least God approved of the, the process. And eventually Saul became disobedient to, to God, to his role, but he was still the king. <laughs> and David still suffered under that. And so you have Psalms time and time again. Like you have a whole book of laments in scripture, like literally called Lamentations. We have Psalm 10, 13, 22, 39, 44, 51, 56, 60, 74, 79, 80, 85, 90, 92, for Samuel 30, Jeremiah 31, Matthew 27, all over the place, time and time again, we are given prayer language of people just to go, I don't like this, this is wrong, and God, I'm simply bringing it to you because I hurt. And I want to know when it's going to end. I want to know that you hear me. And we have an ability to legitimately lament this morning. The sermon's going to be a little different. We're going to highlight some areas and then spend time in a prayer of lament. We don't need to ignore the church's problems to protect its reputation. That's silly. And we can say, I love the church, but here's all the problems with the church, too. Um, and we're not good at grief today. We're just not. We, we want the quicker solutions. And sometimes it's easier to move on from something than to just be sad and sit in it. But the only true eternal cure for the deep wounds is Jesus himself. The solution to bad community isn't abandoning community. It's actually finding good community, healthy treatment plan that would eventually evolve rebuilding a good church community with good boundaries and good leaders. And no community is perfect, but trust can be rebuilt on the other side of lament in healthy relationships with Jesus and life together as a disciple. So the diagnosis is church hurts, and the cure is often grief and laments. And let the Holy Spirit work, do a work there. And lament itself is literally an expression of grief and sorrow in the form of prayer or complaint against God. And there's a lot of reasons for it right now. And it offers us something more substantial, more weighty, more enduring, and less circumstantial to bring those things to God himself. And yes, God already knows our thoughts, our fears, our griefs. It's not like he's unacquainted with it. The Lord wants us to cast our burdens on him. In fact, to the very valley of the shadow of death that we may be feeling or walking through is the very place he promises to walk with us in. And we are promised in the very Beatitudes that blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Life is hard. It's really hard. This world is very broken. The clear story of the Bible is that fact from Genesis 3. Man's sins unleashed an unceasing fury upon creation, and it remains to this day. And will not fully relent until Christ finally returns again. And unlike the popular Hallmark movies, it is now Christmas time for Hallmark. But they have clean and tidy stories, but our world is messy and doesn't exist that way. And we see throughout the Bible, church history, in our very lives, that sadness is a constant companion. And our hearts get pulverized in this fallen world. And it's okay to sit there and go, I don't get it, I don't like it, and I'm just going to bring that to God. And so we'll talk about four areas today. Uh, we're going to talk about sort of Christian nationalism that exists in the church. Uh, we're going to talk through um, purity culture and the damage that, that existed in, the, in, in sort of the life of the history of the church. Um, we're going to talk about race in the church, and we're going to talk about abusive leadership as well. I want to read just a passage uh, out of Matthew um, this isn't going to be a text-heavy sermon. Sometimes we, we are much more text-heavy. Uh, this is going to be a time for us corporately to pray together. Uh, Matthew 23, starting at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed of earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, as if Jesus is saying, from A to Z, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we covered this text a bit last spring. But Jesus' most feisty moments, his harshest words, almost any time he uses the term hell or any language related to it, are almost always directed at the leadership of the religious institution of his time. Whether it's sort of the pharisaical system that existed predominantly up in Galilee and wanting obedience to the, at the expense of marginalization of others, whether it was the sort of powers that be through the Sadducees and the priest system that Jesus thought were taking advantage of others. He looked at both groups and his harshest language, his harshest retort was to those. And so we're going to spend some time lamenting the very things that Jesus had the harshest language for. Because it's not okay. <laughs> it's like the, I mean, I somehow made it through without crying in the first service, but gosh, this is the stuff I, I hate the most. Uh, particularly around church leadership and its abuses. But let's talk about um, each of these. We're going to spend a little time talking about them. We're going to pray a, a prayer of lament that is kind of pre-written, and then we'll have a little bit of open time on the back end of each of these. But let's talk about sort of the Christian nationalism thing. And hear me, with, with multiples of these, there's a perfectly good practice that does exist. Like, Loving your country is fine. If you want to love America, that's fine. If you want to love some of the freedoms that come with America, it's not great. Celebrate those things. It's great that we have certain freedoms here. But then there's what will get termed as Christian nationalism, with this, this weird mixing of the kingdom of God and American patriotism in a way that is idolatrous. Um, same thing with purity culture. Purity is a good thing. Wanting to bring the lordship of your sexuality under, or you bring your sexuality under the lordship of Jesus in your singleness or in marriage, stuff like that, wonderful. But the means to get there are totally, uh, might have totally gone astray. So Christian nationalism is this idolatrous conflation of Christian faith with American patriotism. That those under the sway of Christian nationalism essentially confuse America for the kingdom of God itself. That the Bill of Rights is held as sacred as the Beatitudes and the Second Amendment is as revered as the Second Commandment which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Baptismal identity is eclipsed 
by national identity, and right-wing politics overshadow the Sermon on the Mount. It's as if uh, we learn to have more in common with our political allies than we do our actual brothers and sisters in Christ. The most needed theological correction for American evangelicals at this moment is to learn that America is not necessarily the kind of biblical Israel, but maybe actually more the kind of biblical Babylon. It's to understand, look, there's things, sure, there's some good things in this country, but there's also some things that are anti the gospel of Jesus or anti the kingdom of Jesus, just like every other country. And once we see that America is a kind of Babylon, including the fact that it's a superpower that likes to encroach on the sovereignty of God, then we can learn to live as faithful exiles in idolatrous culture. Like This is the lesson that's set forth in the book of Daniel. This is essentially a lesson that's set forth in the book of Revelation, to look at Rome and to tell early Christians that their experience is to live a distinct life from the, the, the allegiance that they could have to Rome. By virtue of the baptism, that they were ex- exiles from the very land that they were given birth in. And their total fealty was pledged to Jesus and Jesus alone. Allegiance to empire was incompatible with the Christian confession. So we confess that Jesus is Lord, and that, that is the reality we seek to actually embody, to seek first his kingdom and not the kingdom of America. As believers, we're called to live in the peaceful way of the Lamb, regardless of who actually occupies Palatine Hill in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The kingdom of God is already among us. And as followers of Jesus, we persuade by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, and if need be, by martyrdom, but never by force. And it's fascinating. I mean, you see it all over the place. You see churches chanting, let's go Brandon, in their services. We see people say that Trump was God's man, but for whatever reason, when Biden gets elected, that's not also God putting that person there. It's like not even a consistent theology of who gets to place leaders in their roles. It's like, it's just a mess. It's a mess. And our hope and resonate that we try to be as obedient as we can to not have any of that mess here. But we can also turn on the TV, open up Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and know that we and our fellow brides of Christ throughout the rest of this nation have mixed this all up. And so we're going to lament. We're going to lament the way that this has happened. Um, I'm not going to say anything in depth on each of these, but um, for us to be able to pray and lament. um, And so let's do that now. So if you'll pray, even though this prayer is more, once again, a, a confession of where we're at, but let's pray. That the church would tell us, the church would tell us to pursue the kingdom of God first, and yet too often, God, the church has pursued America first. The church would teach us to proclaim the Lord, that Jesus is Lord of all, but too often, God, when it comes to talk of real power, we more hear about thoughts of, about presidents than anything else. The church taught us about purity and respect, but too often, God, has become mad at those who call out political leaders for their unwholesome remarks about women or people of color. The church taught us that violence isn't the way to solve our problems and to love our enemies, yet the church too often has seemed so preoccupied with war and the right to bear arms. The church has taught us to spread the gospel, yet too often we hear uh, from her uh, largely is about spreading political ideologies. The church taught us to welcome the stranger as a friend and to help those in need, yet too often she would talk so disparagingly about immigrants, refugees, and those in need of welfare. The church has taught us to repent Yet when some want to repent of things like racism and jingoism and nationalism, you treat them as if they are just politically misguided rather than gospelly determined. The church taught us that all of life is sacred, yet talks as if it only applies to the unborn. God, it seems like pro-life is mostly only to apply to the unborn and not all the other ways of the human life to exist and to be cared for, even the earth itself and its climate, its animals, and its future. The church told us that relationships were the way of the gospel and had nothing to do with the work of legalism, yet too often there is much talk about working to get the right people and political power and to shape the legal system in favor of what a particular set of values. church taught us to worship God alone and to see scripture as its primary authority, yet too often has acted as though this country and its constitution is on the same level. The church called a whole generation of millennials and Gen Z lazy, entitled, and shamed so many of us for leaving the church. While some of the criticism may be accurate, some not, so many feel like the church has abandoned so much of what it proclaims 
that she has become lazy and entitled over political power itself. So God, we do lament where we're at in this nation. We lament so much of the mix of national identity with identity in you. Ways that is used to marginalize and um, suppress those that are on the, the outskirts or have less power. God, ways that seek first the kingdom has been replaced of seek first uh, political agenda. And God, um, I pray for our church itself, wherever we have done the same, on right or left. God, we know that it's not sin to be involved and to vote and to desire and to work for change, but God, may it be the change that you design and desire from this world. You've given us a ministry of reconciliation, and may we do that faithfully. I want to open up a um, time of quiet uh, for just confession. Um, you don't have to say it out loud, but each of us plays some role in this. Each of us have ways that sometimes the, the, our, our identity comes in tension with Jesus' call to what we are actually called to be. And maybe it's just a moment to go, yeah, maybe, maybe my blue and red has been a little bit stronger than my Jesus identity. So let's confess, and then we'll move to the next topic. Amen. Let's move on to um, conversations around abuse of power and what's going on currently. Um, said for the last several years, there's been plenty of reports that have come out about abuses of power. Some of those clergy sexual abuses, some of those are spiritual abuses, several churches, denominations throughout the United States. And we want to address and confess and lament the harm that's caused by so much of this. Places that should be the safest places to trust your leadership. And often these relationships were intimate and formative. Maybe it's the pastor somebody grew up with, the mentor that they trusted. Rather, some of these relationships were more distant. Maybe it was people that you were heavily just influenced by, the, the likes of Ravi Zacharias or Carl Lentz or Mark Driscoll or various names that could be thrown in there, whose teaching and charisma powerfully inspired you and formatively shaped you during those times, but then the curtain got kind of pulled back. And the betrayal can actually make everything feel like a sham altogether. And the pain can be excruciating and disorienting. Michael Kruger's definition um, of spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader of any form of leadership wields their position or spiritual authority in such a way that he or she manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under them as a means of accomplishing what he or she takes to be biblical and or spiritual goals. And they often use things like guilt and shame around it, claiming to speak for God themselves. They often proof text a verse or two to defend it. Gaslighting is super common, that if you bring up any criticism, it's just you, you're the crazy one, you must be apostate. If you really knew the real leader, you wouldn't actually say that, a lot of that kind of talk. And I've heard story after story here at Resonate of some of you who have just experienced devastation at a church experience, it's caused you to leave, it's caused you to question things, because of just how much hurt you had under leaders that, I would argue, from the stories that I've heard, abused their position, their title. And it's not okay. It's like the thing, gosh, this is the thing I hate the most hearing about. Um, and so uh, I want to lament, uh, and then we'll move into uh, another kind of prayer time. Let's pray. Jesus, as you left this earth, you called your followers to live in a new kingdom of love, justice, and healing. We confess that the church that once turned the world upside down has not followed your ways, but has done evil. Men have loved power more than people. Where you demonstrated compassion, leaders have abused those in their care. Instead of nurturing truth and justice, there has been a culture of silence and secrets. Leaders have covered up injustices and silenced those who speak up. We repent of ambivalence and apathy towards injustice. We repent of being like the tax collector who said, thank God I'm not like that sinner. 
We've often closed our eyes and ears to the cries of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us, O Lord, who turn towards the hurting yourself. Have mercy on us, we pray. With the ones who have been hurt by the very people who were supposed to be in care and to care for them, with those who have been physically, emotionally, and spiritually abused, we cry out. With those who no longer feel safe in a place where they should find God's love, we mourn. We grieve the disappointment, confusion, and pain that comes with hearing that those who we look up to, who are our teachers, have caused harm. We sit in the pain with those who have lost friendships, have been shunned by church communities by speaking out or leaving unhealthy churches. O God who hears, it should not be this way among those who call themselves your followers. With those who have had to fight to be heard and understood, we lament. With those who have been mistreated in churches due to race and gender, we cry out, how long, O Lord? We groan along with creation, waiting for the day when you will make all things right. Come quickly, Jesus. This burden is too heavy for us to carry. Help us, Holy Spirit. We believe help us. Uh, we believe help us in our unbelief. And specifically for our church at Resonate, Lord, keep us from sins, known and unknown. Shine your light into our midst. Reveal our blind spots. Open our eyes and ears and hearts. May we truly see and hear the hurting. May we be quick to listen and slow to speak when our brothers and sisters share their experiences. May we not be in a hurry to move on, but be willing to sit with the discomfort, mourning with those who mourn as long as it takes to bring healing. Lead us, pastors, church members, in creating a culture that nurtures goodness, empathy, grace, truth, justice, service, Christ-likeness. May we walk in the way of Christ, the way of love, through faith in the name of Jesus and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And here's what I want us to do, and it's ultimately up, up to you if you're comfortable. Um, I know a few of you in the room have stories of legitimate church hurt, abuse at the hands of leaders, um, just pain of an experience of those you trusted to be faithful representatives of Jesus and the leadership over you. It's caused just pain. And uh, I'm going to invite you in a second if, if you want to stand, but to be prayed for. And the reason we want to pray for you is that, like it's, this is just an area that the, the, the enemy can get an easy foothold of bitterness, of, of anger that doesn't, that festers too long, of unforgiveness. And we don't, we don't want that for you. We don't want that for the other people. We, we want to pray for healing. Should that be part of your story? And so uh, I'll invite, if anybody, that, that's part of their story, that's part of their history, and they want to be prayed for this morning, I invite you to stand up. And we'll have people around you that have your experience. I invite you now to, to stand. And I know, I mean, we had multiple people in the first service, and I'm sure it's happening here today. And we want to pray for you. So if you're near someone that has stood up, I invite you, just lay your hands on them, and I'll lead us in a, in a prayer for them in this time. God, I do pray. God, your church is your bride, but at times, gosh, it sure doesn't look that way. And so many, um, so many of those we um, entrust with our lives as leaders over us have hurt us, have abused us, have been the, the anti-Christ, the anti-version of you in our lives. And God, that's so conflated sometimes with our view of you, our view of the church, our view of your people. And God, I do pray for each of the individual, individuals in this room. God, I pray for healing 
that any bitterness, any anger and hatred that still exists, God, that you would do a work to continue to release them from it. That there's avenues for forgiveness and reconciliation, God, that those would be pursued, but with a whole lot of wisdom and counsel. God, we just lament what a mess unfaithful leadership looks like. And we, with the same sort of seriousness that Jesus brings to the table, we condemn it in the greatest form that it can be condemned in. And pray for each of these individuals that they would find you to be so much sweeter than the bad leadership they've experienced. Gosh, that you would even be sweeter than the good leadership they've experienced. That Jesus, you are better than the mess that your church is. And we can still love it. But God, that we would call it, call the brokenness of it what it is. And trust you to continue to do work through your spirit. God, just heal each of those in here. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. All right, I gotta keep going. Next topic uh, is a wonderful topic of purity culture. For those of you who don't know what it is, you are more blessed for that. Um, but purity culture is this movement that started really in the 90s and into the early 2000s um, that uh, was tied into things like True Love Waits, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris's book, amongst others. And it was a teaching that went beyond the sort of Christian sex ethic that in scripture and would argue ultimately for things that would produce... Um, some forms of legalism, some forms of identity problems, um, and would elevate uh, sexual thoughts, uh, anything like that, any physical contact or sex outside of marriage as if those are unforgivable sins in and of themselves. Um, it could be summed up, uh, Leah and I do premarital counseling, and one of the topics we cover is sex. And uh, In the counseling book, uh, it jokes about, um, not jokes about a very serious thing, but that so much of the teaching in the church is sex is dirty, disgusting, and vile, so save it for the one you love. <laughs> and that's, that's the teaching. I mean, that is purity culture 101 right there. Uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer, who writes uh, Mama Bear Apologetics, she writes this, the culture had particularly harmful effects on women. It wasn't just your actions that could be sinful. It was your body itself. In elementary school, you were basically a ticking time bomb of temptation. Once puberty entered the scene, you, ex um, you exploded from a Shirley Temple into a Delilah looking for a Samson. Oh, by the way, Shirley Temple's not just a drink. It is an actress who was very little and young uh, when she was famous. A girl's figure suddenly became a threat to the souls of the boys in the youth group, as well as to the faith of the girl herself. This meant that girls were totally on the hook if their brothers in Christ couldn't keep their eyes to themselves. And that womanly figure you had been waiting your whole life, your, for your whole preteen life, you'd better cover it up. Because now the puberty has kicked in your development into high gear. The body you were told was fearfully and wonderfully made is starting to make you look like a harlot. As author Linda K. Klein put it, female bodies were nothing more than things over which men and boys could trip. Shameful stumbling blocks waiting to drag you and the boys you liked away from God. Tucked within the body-shaming nightmare was the belief that guys just couldn't help themselves. They're wired to respond visually to girls, after all. If their imagination started running wild, it wasn't their fault. That's just how they're made. And there were plenty of matronly women hovering around the church who would happily clasp their pearls while pointing out all the different ways girls were going astray. So you best watch how you dress, or else. This was the teaching for so much of the movement. Women were blamed for their husband's indiscretions if he cheated. It created distorted views that made the men always the victim of the women's clothing choices and what they wore. It was almost teaching a Greco-Roman understanding of sexuality again as opposed to a biblical. The Greco-Roman world was that the husband owned the body of the wife and owned any other lower status woman if he wanted to. Um, and he had a consuming appetite for sexual desire, and it had to be satisfied. That was a Greco-Roman way of understanding it. And the Bible comes along and says, hey, guess what, man? Your body doesn't belong to yourself. It also belongs to your wife. It's a mutuality of shared bodily experience in your marriage. And that would have been like 
radically an affront to a cultural understanding of the world at the time. This is, this is the understanding. And men, on the other hand, were taught to control their sexual urges and to basically avoid women so they wouldn't be tempted. And I'll hit on this next week when we talk about women in ministry. But man, that caused a lot of damage as well. The most essential point, starting point, that we operate out of as a community of individuals as a church is that we are a family. So those of the opposite sex are brothers and sisters in Christ with you. That is the starting point for all relationships. They are brothers and sisters and co-laborers in the gospel. And when we live in a world that is very sexualized and, and so much of the opposite sex is objects, this should be the place where we can actually have legitimate friendships of brothers and sisters in Christ and stand against the culture at large and go, yes, men and women can be legitimate friends without necessarily getting to everything being sexual all the time. It's letting the culture in when we do that. And we come up with goofy rules that men and women can't have coffee together or something along those lines. Now, there's wisdom in certain situations. I understand that. There's a lot of nuance there. But at some point, we, we have to understand that like, we, are, we are a family of brothers and sisters. And we love each other that way. No, I won't. Never. Some include that purity culture makes virginity an idol and that purity is seen as a stage of life as a lifelong process and purity itself then becomes equated with holiness itself. As author Jessica Valenti scathingly remarked, you could be vapid, stupid, and unethical, but as long as you've never had sex, and you're a, you, then you would be a good girl and moral and therefore worthy of praise. It operates with a vision of sex as prosperity gospel, as if obedience now ultimately earns some sort of special blessing for the sexuality in your marriage. Like, if you just don't have sex before you get married, you're going to have this amazing sex life, right? That's what people were sold for a long time. And then they go on their honeymoon, and they're like, I was sold a false bill of goods, right? And it's a mess. And it wasn't, it wasn't a godly understanding of, of it, a sex in itself. So let's pray. I could talk at length about purity culture, but um, let's pray. God, we lament. We lament the dehumanizing, unbiblical ways people were compared to things like chewing gum, half-eaten lollipops, juice that somebody has spit in, flowers without petals, use pieces of tape, whatever other metaphor to communicate sin and dehumanize and work against the Imago Dei. God, by making sex all these destructive things, we lament that for many, the gift of sex is a struggle to enjoy because so much shame has been on it for years. We lament that kids often feel pressured by pushy parents or friends to make a pledge that they weren't ready for or didn't fully understand. They knew they didn't want to let their youth pastor or their mom down, and so they played the part until a boyfriend or girlfriend came along. We lament that perhaps sex was not taught at all in situations, thinking that you can't desire what you don't know exists, that many were ashamed of their bodies and thought that their sexual development and attraction towards others were a threat to their salvation. God, we lament the way that dating and relationships were taught of as giving away pieces of yourself and unbiblical teaching altogether and the cause of many legalistic boundaries put on just about every activity related to uh, cross-gendered relationships. We lament for the many women who feel ashamed of their bodies for simply being womanly, that puberty was looked at with fear and shame. We lament any teaching that taught boys will be boys, and didn't call men to a higher standard of taking every thought captive for the glory of God, including the objectification of women. We lament that any conversation today about modesty now needs to come with it about a thousand disclaimers. So God, we just lament. A movement with the right intentions and a terrible means to get there. Which is so true of so much of the church at times. And so God, in any ways that particularly women were just devastated by the movement. God, we, we lament it. We could feel sad over that season in the life of the church and maybe start moving forward with a healthy understanding of sexuality, healthy understanding of genders, healthy understanding of friendships and relationships within the church. Amen. Uh, I want to invite us into a bit of an open time once again. Um, but I want instead of silence, I want anyone who has, if the Spirit's been stirring, if the Spirit's prompting you to pray out loud, uh, I want you to do that. In turn, we're not all going to go at once, um, but um, 
But for anyone in the church who feels like this is a moment that God wants you to pray with and for the church itself, uh, I want to invite you to do so. So let's open the floor to prayer. So Lord, have mercy in all the ways that church has got it wrong in these areas, all the ways it continues to. We pray that you would have mercy. Correct us where we need correcting so we could be faithful. Amen. And lastly, I want to talk uh, through race. I love that we're doing The Color of Compromise uh, in a book study right now because Jamar Tisby's book essentially just traces the history of... um, the ways that uh, predominantly white Christians through history have used the Bible to create racial divides, to justify all sorts of different actions uh, throughout uh, its history here, particularly in America, uh, whether it's through the Revolutionary War and colonists, um, and uh, who had no intentions of extending liberty to enslaved blacks, to eventually the formation of a number of black denominations uh, early on, uh, when white churches would kick out, would literally physically there'd be people kneeling. African-Americans in their church would be kneeling and they would pick them up and throw them out, which was really the story of the start of the AME church, amongst others, uh, and um, the divides that just were caused um, by white Christians who did not look at black Christians as their brothers and sisters in the faith. Civil war didn't just occur on the battlefields, it occurred in the Bible and the church as well. And as that came to a close, even the, the rise of Jim Crow's Uh, Jim Crow laws, white supremacy, uh, and the church's complicity in a number of those things. Racism wasn't just the southern states. There were discriminatory government orders and stuff in the north as well. And as the civil rights movement got moving, it showed continued deep rift in what would be the birth of um, particularly white evangelicalism as defined uh, currently in America. You would have one group um, that was um, wanting to, to move in action to mobilize, to make this world look more like the kingdom of God and another group that said they were distracted from the gospel. And it created a a constant division. This would be leading to the rise of the religious right that effectively equated evangelicalism in a lot of ways to whiteness in the Republican Party. That continued into Black Lives Matter movement, CRT, and others that just stick to one side saying the other side has lost touch. It's a complicated story. And it's one of deep, um, deeply saddened by in this country. And that's just the complicated history of whites and blacks in America, let alone um, the, the predominantly white churches that have um, been weak on um, interacting with other races, immigrants, minorities, and more. It's a long history. It's a long, complicated history. And here in Atlanta, it's very long. I, remember, I mean, I've joked, I shouldn't go off script, but we're, we're going over. It's fine. Um, I remember when I moved here, I mean, I felt like, um, and remember the Titans, I remember, I felt like that, that sunshine kid uh, moving here from Miami, because Miami's diverse, it's mixed, it's, there's all sorts of, just a different world than moving to Georgia. And I'm like, all right, like, whites and blacks get along, we'll be fine, hey, come to the club with me, like the sunshine does with Donald Faison, and Donald Faison's like, look, I told you, these people were racist, like, I told you, like, you need to wake up, like, I know you're hopeful that everything's good, but it's not the reality. And that has been a learning process for me as a pastor of learning like, oh, like, yeah, as much as I want to just be done with racism, like the reality is we're in Atlanta and there's a long history of it, long history of churches, complicity in a lot of it. And so we lament it. And guess what? Like, yeah, uh, so many people are like, well, we have a black president now. And then the last decade since then has been the deepest racial divide our country has probably seen in a long time. It's like, it's a mess. And we want to lament it. We want to lament when there's a shooting of Asian American people in, in, in Atlanta. We want to lament when things like that are happening. It's, it's, it's a sad blight in our country and even worse in our churches, who should be the very place. Like one of the things the churches stood out in the first century is that people would look on at the church and go, why are those Jews and Gentiles and barbarians and Scythians and men and women and slaves and free men like all sitting around the same table and eating and teaching and learning with each other? What the heck is going on? Like that, that stood as counter empire at that time. And right now the church is squandering an opportunity to just go look at us. You want to talk about what racial reconciliation in America looks like? Look at us. 
That should be the hope and the dream for the church right now. Because it's the hope and the dream of Revelation. Everybody's sitting around the throne worshiping together for every tribe, tongue, and nation. So why would we wait to practice that right now? When we pray the kingdom come, that's part of what we're praying about. Sorry, I got all preachy there. Sorry. Um, But let's pray because this is just an area of just extreme brokenness in our country. God, our hearts are broken. Our souls are grieved, frustrated, angry, afraid. Endless cycles of violence and vengeance and racism everything else. How long, oh Lord, will this go on? How long will we continue to ignore? And I will say, oh, sorry, I'm going to do a disclaimer. A lot of these words are written from the perspective of a white pastor praying about these issues. And if you're a minority and some of the stuff I vocalize is in your experience, I want you to hear it from white leadership of a church that majority still is white. Like, this is the things we want to lament for you and with you and alongside you. How long must we continue to ignore the plight of our nation's minorities and deny them the opportunity and justice they are due as your fellow image bearers? How long will we turn a deaf ear to people of color, preferring instead to hear our own opinions about and solutions to their experiences? How long will we follow and promote those who stoke fear, pride, and feelings of racial superiority rather than exemplifying humility, justice, and compassion? How long will our faith communities remain largely segregated because they're not willing to do the hard work of fighting for racial reconciliation on a local level? How long will your church remain silent about real injustice because we fear being associated with the lawless and the violent who have co-opted racism in order to push their own godless agenda? Lord God, we, your church, lament our explanations, rationalizations, deflections, and self-justifications. We lament our callousness and our convenient blindness. We lament our complicity in a system that advantages some and disadvantages others on the basis of the color of their skin, and we repent. We confess we have not loved you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. We confess that our hearts are tainted with favoritism, bias, and prejudice. We're so steeped in these things, we often show partiality without even realizing it. We confess that we're barely lifted a finger to end racism and oppression, be it systematic or personal. Many of us don't even think it exists. That's how little we understand and empathize with the plight of people of color. And in our weariness and now the depths of genuine concern for our brothers and sisters of color, we bring our failures and frustrations and fears to you, God, for you alone are our hope and salvation. Jesus, you didn't ignore or neglect those who lacked attention, power, and influence. You made time for the marginalized, you vulnerable, the victims of injustice, and you loved them. You didn't stand on the broken and the accused, you stood for them. You liberated the oppressed with mercy and steadfast love. Rather than abusing others to preserve your power, you surrendered your power and your very life to redeem and restore people from every tribe, tongue, and language uh, and nation. And one day you will return to settle all accounts and set all things right for all eternity. Furthermore, God, we hear your call to put away the song and dance of our worship until we are people who stand with the victims of marginalization, oppression, and injustice and demand respect for their rights as well as our own. God, we appeal to you on behalf of our nation, especially your church. We are restless. We are hungry. Fill us with your spirit and remind us that we have only one Lord, one faith, one hope. We are made of one blood. Make our communities within our communities where repentance, forgiveness, racial reconciliation, and commitment to justice for all are on display for the world to see. May your kingdom come, your will be done in us as it is in heaven and teach us and empower us to stand for the truth and grace of Jesus until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the name and authority of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And the action item in this one, um, instead of necessarily praying, I want us to turn to the table. As I said, the early church, this was revolutionary that they would gather and show hospitality to each other amongst so many different lines, but including race. That those of you who come from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different skin tones, all different everything, can come and go, you know what's more important than all those things? Jesus. And I can sit down with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and given our different backgrounds and experiences and stories, and I can go, hey, I'm also a sinner who needed Jesus too. And that's revolutionary. And so we're going to come and take communion. We're going to celebrate what God has done in Jesus. Thankfully, the good news in our laments is the good news of Scripture is that we have still a Redeemer who will come and restore what is broken.
And Jesus is already in the process of doing that and did that by his perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross, raising victoriously from the grave and beating sin, Satan, and death and the principalities behind this world that are constantly in, in, in the battle for our hearts. So we celebrate at the table that it's good news that God is creating, as Ephesians 2 says, this one new humanity of Jew and Gentile and women and men, slave and free. It's wonderful news. And so let's come and celebrate that. In the midst of all of our laments, in the midst of all of our mess, there's good news still to be had that the table helps us celebrate. So let us say the words that we do weekly. That at his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he blessed it and gave thanks. He said, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we proclaim that also verbally by saying uh, this great statement for the life of the church, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united to Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So you can come forward. Uh, we have a gluten-free option on the table. Should you want it, just come around the side. And um, we'll have people that are available to pray for or with you. I know some of these subject matters are very heavy. and uh, We hope that you'll take us up on that.